Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody from the great city of San Francisco in Northern California on this very sunny early afternoon in uh, September. Hope you're all well. We're going to be talking about cities today, their past and their future. I have to admit that I am, a, excusing the pun, very keen on cities. Uh, grew up in London, lived in San Francisco. Uh, I can't imagine living outside cities. Cities, of course, have had a tough time in COVID. But when you look at the map today, and uh, I have to admit my, my, my vision is rather anecdotal, it doesn't seem as if most of the bad COVID weather now is in cities. It tends to be in the south, uh, outside cities. The great metropolises on the east and west coast seem to be fighting COVID quite effectively. Um, a uh, headline today suggests that New York City, America's greatest city, continues to have the lowest COVID rate in the state. Um, and New York seems to be managing COVID very well. Uh, people are showing their proof of vaccination without terrible violence. And indeed, in my city, in San Francisco, if you go to SF Gate, which is an aggregation of news about uh, San Francisco and its environ. Uh, there's there's nothing about COVID. And, and, and walking around the streets today uh, in San Francisco indicate that COVID might, hopefully, touch wood, be history. But not everybody agrees. Um, my guest today on the show is one of America's leading experts on cities. Uh, he, and he's the co-author uh, of a particularly intriguing new book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, um, his name is Edward Glazer. He's a professor at Harvard. He's talking to us from his home just outside of Boston. Um, Ed, welcome. Great to have you. I'm a big admirer of your work. And as a, an enthusiast of the city, uh, I, I've read your, your best-known book, uh, Triumph of the City, with relish. Uh, you wrote this book with your colleague at Harvard, David Cutler, who's an economist, during COVID. Um, how pessimistic are you in this book about the future of cities in the age of the pandemic? Look, I, I am a congenital optimist. I believe that cities have been doing miraculous things for the last 2,500 years, enabling us to work together, to learn from each other, to play with each other. And I believe that the age of urban miracles is not over, right? I think if there's a central message of the book, it is that cities certainly will survive and thrive once more. But I am disturbed by a number of failures of both national and local management. And so we very much wrote the book with the idea that we needed to understand how pandemics impacted cities and why cities seemed so much more vulnerable today than they did 20 years ago. You know, there's, there's some wonderful history in the book. You're an authority on the history, not only of cities, but of pandemics or you and Cutler together. Um, you, you write quite a lot about the Black Death. It seems as if pandemics historically have hit cities worse than the countryside. Is that fair? Absolutely. And there are two reasons for this, one of which is cities are the nodes on our global lattice of travel and trade. And so they are the points of entry 
for disease, just as they are the points of entry for new goods and new ideas. And secondly, uh, ideas spread more readily over dense areas. They hop from person to person, uh, just as, as um, everything else in cities is, is brought together, diseases are brought together. Now, your map was very helpful because it made the point that, in fact, if it's an airborne pandemic, that's as- Which map? The, the map of America during yeah, COVID or the map, map of the Black COVID. Death? This is, they're both great maps, but the map of America during COVID. Um, it's very helpful because it makes the point that, you know, even though if you look back in April 2020, right, it was a very urban disease because it entered through New York, because it entered through uh, Seattle, through uh, Boston. But, you know, this kind of disease, like the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, this can go everywhere. And so, you know, being outside of a city does not make you safe. Whereas 19th century plagues like cholera, you know, if your your water was disconnected from the water system, you were going to be safe from cholera. The city countryside division, Ed, and again, as a historian, as an authority on the city, you don't need me telling you this. The city countryside division in political, cultural, economic terms has been very profound, often leading to civil war, civil unrest, profound political change. How concerned are you by the contemporary city countryside division in the United States, which seems to mirror uh, the politics of division in this country. I am concerned about this, as I am concerned about uh, you know, all of our national divisions. I tend to think the best way to face these things is not to suddenly you know, think that we can just say kumbaya and get rid of them, but, but to focus on real problems that we face as a nation and to focus on how we're actually going to get to joint solutions for this. If we look at the ways that cities got to better government in the 19th century, it wasn't by just saying, oh, we want better government or we want more unity. It was saying, how are we going to provide clean water for our citizens? And the process of actually doing these pragmatic tasks tends to bring people together. I think we have a lot of pragmatic tasks facing the U.S., like making sure we pandemic-proof our country for the next round. Um, and you know, focusing on these joint tasks seems to me like the best way forward. Has COVID created new problems, or has it simply compounded the problems that have, have enveloped American cities? I, I can only speak from the point of view of San Francisco, and the crisis of public space, of homelessness, of inequality, uh, none of these are new, but it seems as if COVID has compounded those. Well, it's been a terribly unequal pandemic, right? I mean, for, you know, the wealthy have been able to segregate themselves, often to leave the city. Educated people have been able to zoom into work. Less educated people have not. So if you go back to May 2020, which is the height of teleworking, 68.9% of Americans with advanced degrees were remote commuting. Um, they were dialing it in. 5% of high school dropouts were telecommuting. Um, and that's 15% of people with just high school degrees were telecommuting. Huge educational divides. And certainly, if you imagine a future that is based primarily around remote work, right, you're imagining a future that is even more inequitable than the last 20 years. In historical terms, uh, many, many of our very literate audience will be familiar with the Decameron De and Boccaccio's wonderful description of of plague in 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 um, in Florence in in uh, in, in classical um, uh, Italy. Um, how how has this been reflected in historical terms? Has plague always been unequal in terms of picking on the poor, on the uh, on the people on the underclass? Have the wealthy always escaped the plague? Well, it's 
easier now because we actually have some idea of, you know, what causes this thing and what to do to protect against it. So if you go back to the really ancient plagues, the plague of Athens, the plague of Constantinople, I don't think the rich had any better idea of how to protect themselves than the poor did. Once you get towards, you know, you said Boccaccio and those those wealthy uh, Florentines running to Fiesole to escape the, the plague, or in the 19th century, where you have more prosperous Philadelphians fleeing before the death of yellow fever, their wealth enables you to protect yourself a little bit. But even though the Black Death may have killed the rich less than they killed the poor, the end economic effects were actually egalitarian, because what the Black Death did was it, it radically increased the ratio of land to people because it killed off a third of the population, which is a human disaster. But the wages for the people who were left over went significantly up. And so in a sense, you got a more equitable end of the 14th century because you went through this you know, utterly catastrophic human event. And so this is an unusual uh, event in the sense that none of our previous pandemics have had an economic uh, event that's associated with it, because none of the things that we used to do, subsistence agriculture, working in factories, were shut down the way that the face-to-face -face urban service economy was shut down. You know, over the past hundred years, as the factories closed, people without a degree from MIT or, or Caltech have found employment, you know, in leisure, hospitality, and retail trade, because the ability to serve a latte with a smile has been a safe haven despite automation and, and outsourcing. Yet those jobs can vanish in a heartbeat when that smile turns into a source of peril rather than a source of pleasure. Uh, as I said, uh, the, the book is um, an experiment, I think would be fair to say, with, uh, with, with David Cutler, um, who is a, 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 a uh, a Harvard professor who's been in and out of the administration. He worked with Obama. So he's politically on the left, although I probably would uh, say that he's, he's center-left. You position yourself as a, a, a center-right thinker, uh, um, long-time Republican. But you seem to both agree that for the city to survive, we need profound socioeconomic and, above all else, economic... Um, economic uh, reform. You talk about the police, but above all else, you talk about inequality. I've been looking around the web this morning, lots of lots of, of posts about the most expensive cities in, 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 in the United States. And that's a picture, of course, of San Francisco, my city, which is the most expensive. During COVID, home prices have jumped dramatically. Are you and Cutler on the same page when it comes to arguing that for cities to survive, we need a profound change in its inequality or in inequality in addressing the inequality of the American city. Uh, I think so. So the way that I think about cities and inequality is that cities have always been unequal places because they are uh, you know, relatively pleasant places to be rich and relatively tolerable places to be poor. You know, 2,400 years ago, uh, Plato in the Republic wrote that every city of whatever size is in reality two, a city, two cities, one a city of the rich and the other a city of the poor. And they are perpetually at war with one another. But that, that inequality is only tolerable if cities continue to fulfill their historic task of turning poor children into middle-income and rich adults. And there is plenty of evidence, particularly put together that by our colleague Raj Chetty and his co-authors, that American cities are really failing to do that, that we are really not doing a great job and our cities are doing worse than our small towns at taking the children of the poor and giving them uh, prosperous lives. You know, you see right at the border 
of big city school districts, a significant jump up in income for kids who grew up outside the city school district as opposed to inside it, and a significant decrease in the probability of being incarcerated as an adult. In some sense, this is the greatest shame of the cities, that we have you know, failed to turn our cities into places of opportunity for the young, just as they do a perfectly good job of taking you know, poorer adults who come and enabling them to find economic opportunity. Moreover, as you pointed out, the crisis of urban affordability is a disaster, and we need to allow the construction that's the only only the real path towards uh, ordinary, towards affordable housing, and we need to reform our cops. Well, we'll talk about the police, um, but I'm you, you're pretty radical, both of you, even though you're both relatively, <laughs> uh, I mean, you describe yourself as suburban academics. I mean, you're obviously both su- successful suburban academics, but your call for an Apollo program when it comes to reforming American health care um, and, and the cities, rather than a Marshall plan, uh, you're saying that this is a that this is essential. You're saying it, it's a matter in some ways, I guess, we, we all know the book, Life and Death of American Cities, uh, but Life and Death of America to reform all this. Is that fair? I think so. And the reason we call it an Apollo uh, program as opposed to a Marshall plan is that we didn't know how to get to the moon when we started. We actually don't know how to fix our urban schools or to promote affordability for all of our, our uh, cities. But we need to start experimenting, especially in the space of, of schools. You know, we're pushing this idea of wraparound vocational programs, like you know, teaching people to become programmers or plumbers after school on weekends on the summer. And you, know, you can competitively source that. You can have pay for performance for these programs. And you know, we should try it. We should try doing more things and then scale up what works. Where do we learn from, Ed? Um, uh... We know today that America surpassed 40 million coronavirus cases. And meanwhile, uh, in Taiwan, there are only eight local cases. The Taiwanese have created a much more resilient system, both politically and in their cities. Singapore has also done a remarkable job. Singapore is the first smart city in the world. Here we have lots of headlines about uh, Singapore being the top smart city in 2020. Do American cities need to look to Asia for models now? Uh, you know, there is a lot to admire about Singapore, which I've long thought is the you know is the best run city in the world. It, it has it easier because it's not just a city, but also a state. So it doesn't have to argue with Sacramento or with Washington, uh, D.C., but it is a very well run place. I will say it's not my favorite city. I, I like it a great deal. But, you know, being a child of New York City in the 1970s, I like a little more grit in my city. Than is New York City your favorite? Is that your? No, 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 no. That That's something I cannot I cannot have an opinion on. That's like t- saying which is my favorite child. No, no, no. There are lots of cities. But you have three? Uh, I have what? Three? I have three kids. That's right. Three kids. What about three favorite cities then? You can talk about those. <laughs> and and make thousands of cities that, that you the other ways. Okay. I'll say tell you some cities that I really love. So Seoul is fantastic because it has, you know, the full level of sort of competence and technological friendliness, but it also is much more open to the outside world than, say, Tokyo, because that sort of Korean culture is just one that's very open to uh, to Americans. In the U.S., 
I am, you know, I remain deeply in love with Chicago, which is a city where I went to graduate school, in part because of the way that the architecture hits the lake. But I also see a lot to admire in those cities of the Sun Belt that combine a real openness to new construction and openness to new businesses and with an ability to, you know, uh, to, to attract educated people. So think of, of Dallas or Plano or even Atlanta. Um, and in Europe, you know, I, I have a deep fondness for Barcelona. Uh, where I've spent many, many happy days working with uh, co-authors and, you know, just just it's a it's a place that's an absolute joy. But, you know, we could go on and, and I, you know, I also love London. I love Vienna I, I, uh, and so forth. Well, you've made lots of enemies, Edward, from the uh, cities <laughs> you didn't mention. But um, you mentioned academia and universities. You're obviously a very distinguished academic. And one of the things you argue in your book is that one key way to fix cities is by fixing our education crisis in America, both in schools and universities. I'm not sure everyone would agree with you. We had the uh, Trinity University, Trinity College academic Deverian Baldwin on the show, who suggests that universities, particularly wealthy universities like the University of Chicago or Harvard, are essentially colonizing cities. Do you think that universities need to do a better job paying back their cities? You know, this is an issue in which economists are not going to be great. We're going to tend to have a relatively tin year on this. But I will say that there's hard statistical work showing the incredible positive effects that universities tend to have for the local economy. So this goes back to the work of Enrico Moretti, who showed that having a land-grant college like MIT, for example, in your city prior to 1940 was a very strong predictor of subsequent earnings at the city level. It's also a strong predictor of population growth after 1990, because skills really are the bedrock on which urban success uh, rests. Uh, the, the work of Naomi Hausman shows that after the Bayh-Dole Act allowed the commercialization of federally funded research, local industries that were connected to a university that had pre-existing research in that area, those industries took off. And so I think it's really important to also recognize that universities do deliver positive spillovers for the local economy. But I will say the book actually doesn't talk very much about universities at all. The book is focused on delivering skills to 12-year-olds, to 15-year-olds, and those who are living in the most distressed parts of, of uh, American America. Uh, and I don't think it's, it's universities are likely to be the solution to that problem, but they're also not the problem either. The problem is figuring out ways that we can upskill Americans in a way that enables them to find a, an economic future and to find empowerment and, and a sense of you know, real joy in participating in the 21st century economy. I was struck, Ed, by the book in, in the sense that it, it, it's quite all-encompassing, survival of the city, living and thriving in an age of isolation. We do a lot of shows. We have many shows on police inequality, on racial um, injustice. Um, we have shows on the crisis of education. We have shows about the problem of technology. And for you, all these are associated with the city. If we can get these right, then the city will be right. Is there a coincidence there that America's problems are America's city's problems too? And I don't know where we begin and end on that one. Well, in, in a sense, it's, some of that has to do with the fact that cities are just more difficult to manage than low-density areas that uh, the, the problems of, of traffic congestion or the problems of, of dealing with poor Americans who live disproportionately in cities, not because there's something wrong with cities, but because cities allow the ability to get around without owning a whole fleet of cars uh, for, uh, for a family. Um, that naturally makes cities somewhat more difficult to manage. Um, 
So I, I don't think there's, I mean, I think cities are much more likely to be the solution for America's problems than actually the source of, the, of those problems. But it is certainly true that many of America's most intractable issues, like the issue of urban schools, are city problems. What about race, Ed? How, how does that play out in your narrative? And racial inequality and injustice, you, of course, as everyone writing uh, about the age of COVID, you write a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement and the struggle for racial justice in this country. How does that play out in terms of the survival of the city? So the first papers that David Cutler and I co-authored were all on racial segregation in the American city. So our first paper was showing the negative impact of racial segregation on African-American outcomes. The second paper was charting the rise in racial segregation across the, the 20th century, and then its modest decline uh, since 1970. So race is very tied together with the history of the American city. And, and certainly many of the greatest epics of urban America, like Detroit, are closely bound uh, together with race. And of course, policing is strongly associated with, with race as well. So certainly one of the problems with American cities tends to be segregation, right? And one of the reasons why big cities do worse is they tend to lead towards pockets of isolation. And this gets exacerbated for kids because if you're an adult, even if you wake up in a relatively poor neighborhood, you're likely to get on the bus or get on the train and go to a relatively integrated office and interact with a whole range of different people of different education levels, different earning levels, different uh, different ethnicities. If you're a poor kid who, who wakes up in your housing project and goes to your highly segregated school, it's like you're living in an isolated village. And in some sense, all of the good things that come from urban mixing, from connecting to lots of other people, from learning from different types of people, all of that is lost if you're living in that isolated space. Police, as you say, is also really important. We've done a number of shows, some more sympathetic to the American police. Uh, Rosa Brooks, uh, law professor at Georgetown, spent a year working at the police, and she was somewhat sympathetic. Um, Alex uh, Vitale uh, believes that I think in some ways the police should be abolished or profoundly reformed. What's your position, you and, and Cutler's position on the police and, and fixing the city, the American city? Um, uh, our view is profoundly reformed, but that not abolished, but that's going to require more spending, not less. And so our view is that we must demand two things from our police. We must demand low levels of crime. And we must demand that every citizen is treated with decency and dignity. And we need to have a dual mandate. And in order to get that, we need to have standard managerial fixes. That means we need to measure both outcomes. We already measure victimization. We already measure crime levels. And so that drives where policing goes. But we also need to, need to measure how people are experiencing the police, whether or not they are happy with the way that they're being treated. And we need to fire police chiefs who aren't delivering on both dimensions. And we need to make sure those police chiefs have the resources that they need to actually make meaningful reforms. So I believe that we really do need to you know, rethink police. We also write a bit about rethinking our prison sentences, which you know the, the, we particularly focus on the three strikes laws, which were instituted in the wake of these horrific murders from these guys, these, these sort of serial problems who never should have been out on the street. But then going from the idea that a serial sex criminal should be locked up to the idea that a three-time marijuana dealer should be locked up is insane, right? We should be able to distinguish between someone who's a small-time petty criminal, who certainly should not be locked up for any significant period of time, versus a uh, a, a you know real danger. And yet our, our system doesn't do that. So it's it's a failure of you know common sense. It's a failure of good management practices. 
Ed, last year I did a show with a, an author who argued that climate change is creating an existential crisis for some American cities like Miami. Uh, I, I didn't see, though, climate change in the environment as centrally in your book as some of the more socioeconomic aspects. What, what's your feeling about the survival of the city and our existential, our collective existential crisis of global warming? So there, there are two elements here, one of which is, of course, mitigation, the other which is adaptation. So the mitigation front is what cities can do to reduce carbon emissions. And in my previous book, I wrote a whole chapter about how living densely, uh, both because you take public transportation and because you live. Yeah, in, the, in the subtitle, you've got uh, how our greatest invention makes us richer, smarter, greener, healthier and happier. So sorry. Exactly. So and so that dense living reduces the carbon footprint. Um, now, I haven't changed my view on that. I just didn't think it was crucial for the, the COVID response. The other side of it, the adaptation, dealing with seawalls, dealing with Miami underwater, it's just a it's just a tough topic. And it just didn't seem that closely related to COVID. But you should not take its absence as meaning that I don't think it's incredibly serious. In fact, I woke up this morning with a six o'clock Zoom talking about, you know, weatherproofing London from the Thames crowding. So Thames, Thames flooding. So it's, it really is a serious, important question. It just seemed like it was, it was too much in this book already. Yeah, there was a lot in the book. And another of the chapters that I found particularly interesting was your section on technology. You have some really interesting stuff about Alvin Toffler, the great futurist. And you talk about the way in which uh, communications technology, the digital revolution is changing the city. Yesterday, we had the Stanford University professor, uh, Rob Reich, on the show. Uh, he has a new book out, System Era, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How to Reboot. And interestingly enough, in terms of cities, he begins, his, um, he begins the book, or they begin the book, with, with a critique of, a, of a, 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 a Silicon Valley startup called Do Not Pay. Uh, it's a robo-lawyer uh, platform designed to get people to stop paying their traffic tickets. And, and, and what Cutler argued uh, in our conversation is it was undermining the city. Do you think, and obviously that's anecdotal, but do you think that the Silicon Valley revolution, the kind of entrepreneurs, the Zuckerbergs and the Musks, and even the Steve Jobs, they didn't really get the city, do they? They don't have a lot of respect for dense urban places. Is that fair? Uh, I don't. So I don't think that that's, you know, I, I don't think you can make generalizations about that. So, you know, uh, Google's uh, investments in urban technology have been quite, uh, quite large, right? So, uh, you know, certainly the, the Sergey Brin team is big on this. Amazon, you know, located in Seattle, they clearly chose uh, chose where to, you know, where to where to uh, locate based on the city. Um, so the, uh, you know, so but uh, obviously Amazon is not a particularly urban service, right? The ability to to order things uh, via the internet has been brutal on urban retail. So I, I think it depends from company to company about whether or not they're pro-urban or not. But would it be fair to say that the sort of utilitarian efficiency, which is the philosophical heart of the Silicon Revolution, is not necessarily friendly to cities? Cities don't exist because they're more efficient. They exist because they're better, because they're more attractive, they're more beautiful, and sometimes probably because they're more inefficient. 
there certainly is plenty of that that makes cities great. I certainly agree with that. And it is certainly true that certain types of technology can seem a very poor fit for that. I guess I'm really pushing back because I think that the real past 40 years, what technologies have done is they've radically increased the returns to being creative. They've radically increased the returns to being innovative. And I think that fundamentally makes us a more urban species. We get creative by being around other smart people. And that's what cities do that really matters. And that's, you know, in that way, I think cities have nothing to fear from technology. Does that mean, Ed, that, we're, that cities are still intimately bound up with Richard Florida's creative class? Is that a thesis which you think summarizes the potential in the city? Uh, you know, it's a, cities are related to creativity. It's one of the things that they do. And certainly, um, you know, the share of the population that is college educated is a good predictor of whether or not cities do well or poorly. Certainly one of the impacts of Zoom is that the skills have never become more mobile. And so in some sense, the global fight for talent is only going to become hotter. This is the big challenge the cities face is they've got to both do a better job of taking care of their disadvantaged without losing the firms and the rich who are mobile. And I think that requires, at least what we argue in the, in the book, that requires you know being smart about government, not just thinking that you can tax the rich and, and redistribute, not just thinking that you can defund the police and that would be good, but figuring out how to, you know, do a better job delivering schooling, do a better job delivering policing that is both effective and humane. Ed, uh, as I said, uh, you, your new book, Survival of the City, the subtitle is Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Do you think that's a little overdramatic? Do you really think that we're on the verge of an age of isolation once everyone gets the vaccine? Aren't we just going to go back to normal? Oh, I think I think the book's subtitle refers to the current moment more than it does to a long run uh, outcome. Yes, I think we are going to reconnect with each other. I think there's something fundamental in humanity that we crave each other's connection. And consequently, even though I think that individual cities may be vulnerable because of this, particularly those cities that started in a place that was divided, that started in a place that was weak, I have no doubt that humans will be connecting in cities for millennia to come. I, I agree. I hope so. I, I began by saying that I love cities and I love writers on cities. Um, Balzac in particular, Dostoevsky, ah. of course. Uh, and your you book. Know, I was just thinking about Pierre Goriot this morning. Yes. Good. Well, well I, 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 uh, you're, yes. you, only professors at uh, Harvard Ed, uh, think about Pierre Goriot in the morning. Um, your book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, it might not be Dostoevsky or, or Balzac, but it's a wonderful read, very interesting and provocative. Congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading, perhaps about cities or history, on top of your book and, and Balzac and Dostoevsky? So I, I loved reading Kyle Harper's The Fate of Rome. Oh, my God. You're the third person, Ed, to be talking. And, and Harper's coming on the show next month. So Fantastic. he's hot at the moment, this guy. He should be hot. Uh, absolutely. No, it's it's a terrific book on climate and disease and how it relates to, to Rome. And if I can... And by the way, he has a new book out, a broader book on climate and, 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 yes, and, and cities. So it's out. Uh, I think it's Princeton University Press next month. He does. He does. Absolutely. And if I can plug a 10-year-old book that I'm currently loving, because I've been a fan of Norman Davies, the historian most notably of Poland, but he has yeah. a wonderful book called Vanished Kingdoms, 
which I'm currently reading, and I'm, uh, which has, you know, tells the story of the lost kingdom of Toulouse, the lost kingdom of Aragon, the lost kingdom of Strathclyde, the lost kingdom of Belarus. So it's a it's a wonderful read from a very sort of civilized and knowledgeable uh, historian. Yeah, Norman, Norman Davis many years ago taught me history at the University of London, so I'm very fond of him too. Edward Glazer, real honor, privilege. Congratulations on the book. Keep well, keep thinking. You're one of America's leading urbanists. We need you. Our cities need you. Uh, and uh, we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you.